In my last few lessons, we examined the role of God's grace, our faith, and works in our salvation. We said that God's grace is his role in the redemption plan and includes everything he did to accomplish our salvation. Obviously, there must be a response from man in order for God's grace to work. If everything God did to save man required no response, then everybody who ever lived would be saved regardless of how they lived. Jesus makes it clear that that is not the case in Matthew 22, verse 14, where he says, for many are called, but few are chosen. The required response to God's gracious offer of salvation is summed up in God's word as faith. Faith as a comprehensive biblical term includes everything man does in response to God's grace. Grace is God reaching down from heaven to mankind with an offer and a means of salvation. Faith is man reaching towards God in realization of his doomed state and in the hope of God's grace. Grace is God reaching down to man and faith is man reaching up to God. We said that any response whatsoever from mankind is a work. A work is defined as a mental or physical action which is intended to produce a result. God's grace and man's faith work together to produce a result. Both grace and faith are works. Grace is the work of God. Faith is the work of man. Both grace and faith are indispensable to the salvation process, and both of them are works. Thus, we rightly conclude that if works were not necessary, then salvation would be possible without any response from man whatsoever. Jesus makes it crystal clear in Matthew 7, verse 21, that this is not the case. We also saw that works cannot save us by circumventing God's grace or our faith. Works cannot save us by repaying God for his grace and what it cost him. Works cannot save us by compelling God to offer his grace. God's grace is a gift freely offered completely exclusive of man's works. Works cannot save us by earning, paying for, or deserving salvation in any way. If works could save us, we would not need God's grace. In these ways, works cannot save us, but faith is a work according to 1 Thessalonians 1 and 3 and 2 Thessalonians 1 and 11. So even though works cannot save, they are still necessary. What I want to look at today now is a continuation of this. I want to look at God's law. Where does God's law fit into all of this? This is an important question because there are those that claim that Christ is their Savior and make that claim that there is no law under the new covenant. I've heard it said among some that the old covenant was one of law and no grace, and the new covenant is one of grace and no law. The purpose of this lesson is to make an examination of God's law and how it fits in with God's grace and our faith. What is law? Law is a rule or set of rules, enforceable, 
regulating the behavior of those over which it has authority. In short, its definition is a rule of conduct. Is there law in the new covenant? There are two laws spoken of in the New Testament as we read it. The most common one directly mentioned of as law is usually in reference to the law of Moses. In Acts 13 at verse 39, Paul made a reference to the law of Moses that is of particular relevance to this lesson. Paul said in Acts 13 at 39, and by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified under the law of Moses. Paul made a reference here to the law of Moses and in doing so, he made a very important observation. The law of Moses cannot justify anyone. The word justify means to make just or to declare one to be innocent. The Hebrew writer further explains this in Hebrews chapter 10 at verse 4 when he wrote, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Animal sacrifices under the law of Moses were incapable of taking away the sins of the people. All they did was accomplish the rolling forward of sins. The animal sacrifices were only capable of appeasing God's wrath for a period of time. The Hebrew writer tells us when this time was in Hebrews 9 and 15, where we read, And for this reason he, that's Jesus Christ, is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Under the law of Moses, the sins of the people were only atoned for until the death of Christ on the cross, at which time his blood then provided the total and complete forgiveness of their sins. In first century times, there was a lot of confusion and resistance from some of the Jews who just would not let go of the law of Moses. A large portion of the New Testament is devoted to explaining the difference between the old and the new covenant. It is vital to our understanding of God's law that we know the difference. Much religion error today comes from the inability of some to distinguish between the law of Moses and the law of God under the new covenant. Let's look at a particular verse which is contrasting the two laws that we find in Scripture, and from there we will make some observations and then build on this study of whether or not there is New Testament law. I'm going to look now at Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Galatians 2 and 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. In the book of Galatians, Paul was dealing with Judaizers who had crept into the churches and were convincing the people they should follow the law of Moses. 
Paul's singular purpose of writing the letter to the Galatians was to correct this false teaching brought in by those who refused to let go of the law of Moses and were bringing Christians back under the old law. Let's examine the text of Galatians 2 and 16, and for a moment, let's look at it from the perspective that Paul is speaking of all the law of God and not just the law of Moses. When Paul's statement in Galatians 2 and 16 is taken from the proper context, it can be, and it is, used to set forth the belief that there is no law under the new covenant. Those who want to go to heaven but don't want to commit their lives to serving God in an acceptable manner convince themselves that they are safe from God's condemnation based on the misguided belief that the inabilities and inadequacies of the law of Moses apply to all of the law of God in general. This belief allows them to live any way they want because they believe that the new covenant releases us from the law of Moses and releases us today from obligations to a new covenant law. So let's deal with this issue first. Is there a law under the new covenant? To answer this question, let's look at two key verses. And the first is in Romans. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, where Paul has written, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one today who is accountable before God who has not sinned. All have sinned and fallen short. Now let's look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. And here we learn, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. If then there is no law at all under the new covenant, and sin is a transgression of the law, then how is it that we all have sinned? What law was transgressed? For there to be a transgression of the law, there must be a law to transgress. We cannot break a law where there is none. If there is no law against speeding, we cannot break the speed limit. It is not possible to transgress a law that does not exist. Indeed, in Romans 4 and 15, Paul wrote, For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Yes, there is law under the new covenant. So what is it called and how do we know which law is being discussed when we see law referenced in the scriptures. In referencing the new covenant law, Paul mentions this in Romans chapter 8, verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Paul is contrasting two laws found in each covenant here. We have the law of the spirit of life contrasted with the law of sin and death. We already know that the law of Moses was incapable of the justification of anyone. The law of Moses was not a law which, when kept, could permanently free anyone from sin and condemnation. It's obvious that the law of sin and death is in reference to the Old Covenant law. The law of the spirit of life is a reference to a law which, when kept, frees us from the old covenant law of sin and death. 
If there is no law under the new covenant, then it is not possible to be made free from the old covenant law. Yes, there is a New Testament law. And in Romans 8 and 2, Paul called it the law of the spirit of life. While writing his inspired letter to the Galatians, Paul wrote in Galatians 6 and 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This reference to a law cannot be about the law of Moses. God gave the law of Moses to Moses on Mount Sinai, centuries before Jesus Christ walked the earth. This was near the end of the letter that Paul wrote, which was dedicated to the abolishment of the law of Moses and how it does no good to keep it. He makes mention of a law that we are supposed to keep, and he called it the law of Christ. We are not required to keep the law of Moses, but we are required to fulfill the law of Christ. If there was no law under the new covenant, then there would be no law of Christ to fulfill. So far, we have two references to new covenant law. Paul has called it the law of the spirit of life and the law of Christ. In James, we see another reference to new covenant law. In James 2 and 8, it says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. James calls this a royal law. That cannot be a reference to the law of Moses because Moses was never a king. So then who is the king that James is talking about here? Paul answers that question in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 14. That you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is our king under the new covenant, so the royal law can be nothing other than the law of Christ. If there is no new covenant law, then what are the standards by which Jesus rules us? A king who reigns over people must do so with rules of behavior. We simply call these rules law. Paul called it the law of the spirit of life and the law of Christ. James called it the royal law, but James isn't finished yet. He also made reference to New Covenant law a few verses later in James 1 at verse 25. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not for a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in all that he does. What is this liberty that James is speaking about here? Well, there are those who teach that it really isn't any law under the new covenant, but this law of liberty is actually the freedom to live our lives free of any rules of conduct required by God as found in scripture. Is that true? We can put that to the test by reading carefully what the verse says. Is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. If the law of liberty freed anyone from keeping God's law, 
then no one would have to be a doer of the work in order to be blessed. Yes, there is a law in the new covenant, and James says we must be a doer of the work of this law of liberty. The law of liberty liberates us from the sins which the law of Moses could not accomplish. The law of liberty does not liberate us from the need to obey God. So, so far, we have the law of the spirit of life, which Paul said would free us from the law of sin and death. The law of Christ, which Paul commanded Christians to fulfill. The royal law, which James commanded Christians to fulfill, and the result would be the love of their neighbors. And the law of liberty, which James commanded Christians to continue in and to do the work. In Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, we see one of the most informative verses regarding the laws found in each covenant. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 20. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, and now we see parentheses, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. Here is a parenthetical statement which Paul used to ensure there was no misunderstanding. Paul says, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ. However, Paul adopted his conduct. It never involved disobeying the word of God, the word of the Lord, or violating his allegiance to the law of Christ. Paul was still living under law, and here he was discussing various ways in which he engaged in his evangelical efforts to both the Jews and the Gentiles. Paul accommodated himself to the prejudices and the preferences of men so far as he could without sacrificing truth and righteousness in order to win them to Christ. He did this not that he might personally be popular with any man, but that by doing so, he might throw no obstacle in the way of their giving the gospel a fair hearing. To those Gentiles who did not live under the law of Moses, Paul said he made it obvious that he was not living under that law. Then Paul made an important statement regarding the law under the new covenant. He said, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ. In other words, I am not free of God's law, but I am under Christ's law. Paul declared to Christians that he and every single person on earth, both Jew and Gentile, were not living without law. The law he was living under was the law of Christ. Of the laws Paul spoke of in this context, the law of Christ is the one that he was living under. Concerning the law of God, Paul wrote in Romans 8, verse 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. A carnal mind is a sinful mind. In this context, Paul was discussing the differences between those who live with and without sinful minds. 
The mind is subordinated to Satan instead of God and is called the carnal mind by Paul. Such a mind no longer has any regard or concern for eternal things and is occupied completely with this earthly life of flesh. He says those who live with carnal minds are not living in obedience to the law of God. If there were no law under the new covenant, then it would be not possible to live outside the law of God. There is law under the new covenant, and in this verse, Paul Paul called it the law of God. So again, we have the law of the spirit of life, which Paul said would free us from the law of sin and death. The law of Christ, which Paul commanded Christians to fulfill. The royal law, which James commanded Christians to fulfill, and the result was love of their neighbors. The law of liberty, which James commanded Christians to continue in and to do the work. The law of God, which Paul said he was not living without. The law of Christ, which Paul says he is living under. And the law of God, again, in this point, Paul says, the carnal-minded people are not living in obedience to. Well, now in our study of Hebrews, we learn a very important fact about the new covenant and law. We're going back to Hebrews chapter 8, and I'd like to read to you Hebrews 8, verses 8 through 13. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that, he says, a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old, is ready to vanish away. There are a number of points we can take from this context relative to our lesson. First, there's going to be a new covenant. We know this new covenant is the New Testament under which Christians live. But notice carefully that God says that this new covenant is going to have its laws written on our hearts and in our minds. This new covenant has laws. Being written on our hearts and in our minds tells us that Christians are going to follow this law from the heart, out of love for God. Christians are going to follow the laws of the new covenant from their own free will, because they love God and they want to obey him. The new covenant, which replaced the old, came with laws. Finally, going back to James, We see yet another reference to the law of liberty. James says in James 2 at verse 9, But if you show partiality, you commit sin, 
and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. James is very obviously not speaking about the law of Moses here. The scriptures make it crystal clear that the law of Moses contained in the old covenant has been replaced by the new covenant whose laws govern us today. There are some important points we can take from these scriptures. It is a transgression of God's law under the new covenant to show favoritism. In verse 10, James writes, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. James lumps the entire new covenant law into one system. There is only one lawgiver. There is only one law. There are no transgressions of the new covenant law that are more or less grievous to God. Any one transgression of any element of the law of Christ is a breach of the whole law because it breaks fellowship with the object of our faith, that is God. James is reiterating something that Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 19. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. There is no such thing as a white lie or a small sin. Any transgression of the law of Christ is a trespass of the entire law. Verse 11 gave us an example. Another very important point we need to take from this context is found in verse 12. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. The law of liberty James spoke of is going to be used to judge us in the end. In John 12, verse 48, Jesus tells us that we will be judged by the things he spoke. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. So let's go back over what we have so far. The law of the spirit of life, which Paul said would free us from the law of sin and death, Romans 8 and 2. The law of Christ, which Paul commanded Christians to fulfill, Galatians 6 and 2. The royal law, which James commanded Christians to fulfill, resulting in the love of their neighbors, James 2 and 8. The law of liberty, which James commanded Christians to continue in and to do the work of the law. Our liberty is the freedom from sin, not a free pass from obedience to God's law, James 1 and 25. The law to God, which Paul says he is not living without. The law to Christ, which Paul says he is living under, 1 Corinthians 9 and 21. The law of God, which Paul says evil-minded people are not subject to, but should be, Romans 8 and 7. The new covenant will replace the old covenant and its laws will be imprinted 
on our hearts and minds, Hebrews 8, verses 8 through 13. The law of liberty is transgressed by any violation of God's will, James chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. The law of liberty is going to be used to judge us, James 2 and 12. The word of God teaches that there is most certainly law under the new covenant. This law can be broken, which means we need to obey the new covenant law faithfully because in the end, we are going to be judged by the new covenant law. In order for there to be any judgment, there must be a standard or a set of rules by which we are judged. So yes, there is law under the new covenant, and we must live by that law if we have any hope whatsoever of an eternal home in heaven with God. In our previous lessons on faith, grace, and works, we established a need for all of these things to work together in order to provide man with a means and a method of salvation. If grace was all that was required, then everybody on earth would be saved regardless of how they lived or how they believed. If uh, by grace we are saved through faith, so we know that it cannot be by grace alone. We also cannot be saved by faith alone because without grace, all the faith in the world is useless. Works are a necessary component of faith. It takes all three of these things, grace, faith, and obedient work, working together to save us. Add to these three things God's law under the new covenant. God's grace provides us with a means and a hope of salvation. It is not grace alone because man has to make a response to what God has offered. Everything man does in his response can be summed up as faith. Works are everything we do by faith. God does not owe us anything for them. Works cannot save us by going around the blood of Jesus Christ. And finally, the new covenant law is what we have to obey in order to live faithfully under the rule of Jesus Christ, our King. Grace gave us hope. Faith is our response. Law is what directs how we are to live. If we did not have God's law, we would not know what our response to God's grace should be. Without God's law, we would not know how he wants us to live. We learn from the New Testament how to be saved. We need to hear the word, believe in Jesus, and repent of our sins. We must confess our belief that Jesus is the Son of God and be baptized for the remission of our sins. If we follow these steps, the Lord adds us to his church. Perhaps there is someone in the assembly today with the need to be buried with Christ in baptism. If you've never done these things, we urge you to do them today. If anyone has this need or desires the prayers of faithful Christians on their behalf, we encourage them to come forward while we stand and sing. <laughs> 